news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome to today's bonus episode. We're doing something pretty special today. We're trying out our new format in which we invite the author onto the show so that they can be with us and answer questions we have as we critique their work. And then we'd love to hear from you if you like the format, if it's something you would like to see in the future. And Ruth, who's our author, can also give us some feedback afterwards to let us know how she enjoyed the experience or how terrifying she might have found it. Hopefully not terrifying at all. So let's dive right in. We're going to ask Ruth to read her own query letter. Ruth? Thanks, Bianca. Dear Carly and Cecilia, firstly, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Thanks for being so generous with the advice you share. I've been listening intently and taking notes. Please find the first pages of my debut novel attached. Title Redacted is an 80,000 word contemporary heroine's journey that's sharp, moving and funny book club fiction. Voiced by 26-year-old Aggie, Title Redacted explores the impact of secrets and unresolved trauma. Like Lily King's Writers and Lovers, it explores the urgency of writing and the healing powers of creativity. Aggie's sardonic commentary about the social media generation is akin to Holly Bourne's How Do You Like Me 
now, and a strained mother-daughter relationship has parallels with Emma Jane Unsworth's adults. Title Redacted has further appeal for fans of Bethany Webster's feminist theory of healing the mother wound, as her thinking inspired the plot. Title Redacted starts with Aggie returning to her hometown in the Bristol suburbs because she can't afford London life after graduating. She's listless and adrift, and her town is plagued with memories of being bullied and sexually assaulted as a teenager. Aggie finds an unlikely guide in Angela, her dad's new partner, who works as a somatic sex therapist and encourages Aggie to unpick her family history. Aggie learns she has an older sister who died of sudden infant death syndrome at five months. As she makes sense of how this secret shaped her family, Aggie also discovers that her female boss helped powerful men cover up accusations of sexual harassment that were filed against them. Aggie finds her voice by helping others speak out, and in doing so, learns to make peace with her past. I wrote Title Redacted from the comfort of my narrowboat on the UK canals. I'm a creative producer by day, specialising in documentaries and film. I like adventures and spent 2018 cycling from the UK to Thailand. Accounts for my trip were published in both The Guardian and The Lonely Planet. Despite travelling across the globe, my writing focuses on the interior world and the exploration and growth that can happen anywhere. I hope you enjoy the pages and thanks again for all you do. Wonderful, Ruth. Thanks for that. Right, so let's dive into that. Carly, would you like to begin? Absolutely. Ruth, thank you so much for reading your pages. I loved hearing it from the author. That was such a, a fun treat. But obviously, it's it's always wonderful to not only be complimented at the start of a query, but have the author themselves read it to us. So I had a big smile on my face knowing that you were here with us to, to share this. So getting into the next paragraph, we have the title, title redacted, 80,000 word. So I would cut the contemporary heroine's journey that start moving in funny book club fiction because number one, it's kind of not specific enough contemporary heroine's journey. I mean, that once we figure out, you know, the character's name and all of that, we know that, you know, we have a female character, et cetera, et cetera. So that just felt like superfluous in the sense that we just don't actually need those words. And then sharp and moving, those felt like not specific enough to me almost, which makes me think that we should probably just cut it because once we read about the the book itself, like we're going to connect our own dots on that. And funny is a really hard word. Funny is tough because who decides that things are funny? You know, it's, it's so hard to be funny. It's better to surprise the reader by being funny than telling us you're going to be funny. So I think that's always a nice surprise. So that line there, I would probably just tap it as, you know, just book club fiction and then put the comps in in that area too. That's probably what I would do for, for that section. And then the next section, voiced by 26-year-old Aggie. I love that name. I think that's such a fun name. So I really, I really enjoyed that. I would probably cut the explores the impact of secrets and unresolved trauma. I think because you kind of tell us that later through actually what happens with the sexual assault, you know, being bullied as a teenager. So I don't think you need to tell us there because you show us later. So I would probably cut that. And I would probably also cut the urgency of writing and healing powers of creativity because I want to start with story as opposed to being told how to feel. That's one of my big feelings about feelings. <laughs> so I would probably probably yeah, just, just trim that section up so that we can get to, you know, the, the stuff actually happening a little later on. I really liked the sardonic commentary about the social media generation. I think that's really great. And obviously one of the hooks of this um, project in your voice. Um, and then with the comp, Holly Bourne's, how do you like me now? I would just uh, remind you just to capitalize the first letter in each word there, just so it stands out a little bit. Sometimes when it's not, I thought, oh, was that like a saying I was supposed to know or a line or a lyric? You know what I mean? So just capitalizing each of those words would be great for me. And I would also cut the 
further appeal for fans of Bethany's Webster's feminist theory of healing the mother wound, because I think that's one of those things that when you're having your eventual conversation with the agent, you know, all of that, all of that sort of stuff will come up. So I, I think that just that paragraph should be trimmed. And I just, I think it probably, for me, the query letter starts when we get to title redacted starts with Aggie returning to her hometown, right? Because that's like where the actual meat of the story is starting. And personally, I think, I think that's where it begins. My next, the next paragraph, we have Aggie and Angela's interaction. I found that the words Aggie and Angela sounded quite similar and looked a little bit similar. I mean, I don't know if you, I mean, you don't have to go change your character's names or anything like that, but just so you know, visually they're quite the same. And I had to look up what a somatic sex therapist was. And when I looked it up, I found uh, it's trauma-informed sex therapy. So I would maybe, instead of just requiring people to look up this sort of thing, um, if you could just call it like trauma-informed sex therapist or find like a little bit more of a colloquial way to say it just so at first glance I don't know it's just a bit more revealing to us because sometimes when there's words that we don't know it just pulls us out of the moment and I think we were just building momentum by getting into the moment so yeah like trauma-informed sex therapy or something like that would be I think just a little bit more on the nose and then the rest of the paragraph felt a little bit synopsisy to me because it's a lot of like Aggie to unpick her family history Aggie learns that she had an older sister and you repeat her name a lot Aggie also discovers Aggie finds her voice so that section just felt a little bit like synopsis for those reasons. And the last, my last note is that I just want to know what's at stake here. I think there's just so many interesting nuanced conversations and themes and plots happening. I just want to know what's at stake. And I think internally, I think it's kind of clear. Obviously, she's trying to find herself and discover herself. But on the external, like, I don't know, I always think like, what happens if this character just like ran away and started a new life? You know what I mean? Like, why does she have to stay here in this moment and go through all of this in an external way? Like, what is keeping her here? And and what's at stake? if she doesn't, you know, reveal maybe that the female boss is helping these men cover up these accusations, right? Like what's at stake if if she has to stay and why she has to stay to help work through this in a, in a, in a body way. So that's it of my notes. I thought the author bio was really great. Personally, I'm training for a triathlon. So the fact that you cycled from the UK to Thailand, I'm like, my mind is blown right now. Um, and I, and I think that's great. So there's, there's just so much happening here that is so interesting. And I really think we just need to start it off a little bit faster and then get to the state, but that's my take. Cece, what do you think? Thank you so much for that. And Ruth, thank you for reading that wonderful query. I was nodding along as, as, as Carly was giving her analysis on this. When I first read it, I mean, obviously, thank you for personalizing this for us. It's always lovely to hear. I thought to myself, paragraph three, which starts with voiced by 26-year-old Aggie, it could almost all go. Not because I don't like it. I do. It's my jam, right? Like exploring the impact of secrets and unresolved trauma. I love reading books about that. But I want to know that this book is about like exploring the impact of secrets and unresolved trauma by hearing about the story. I don't want you to tell me that that's what it's about. I want to read about the plot and be like, oh, there's a secret. Because you do mention this in the following paragraph, right? So obviously keep the comps. I would also advise you to follow the book hook cook method that Carly just, you know, unpacked for you 
do that for sure or it'll make this query stronger. Um, I'm really confident in that. And don't think that, oh my gosh, I have to re- re- rewrite this whole thing. Like, yes, it's, it's a lot of editing, but you actually gave us the start of the plot in the following paragraph. So when you tell me that it starts with her returning hometown in Bristol, then I know, okay, so this is where we're going to start the book. And you tell me things that happen. I was wondering as I was reading this, and this is not a bad thing, but I got the vibe that this is a quiet book. We've talked about quiet books before and books with hooks. They're more challenging. The writing needs to be six stars, not to get ahead of myself, but yours is. You're all good there. What I would say is that the last line of paragraph five, Aggie finds her voice by helping others speak out and in doing so, learns to make peace with her past. I was thinking, is that where the plot is buried? Like, is this the hero's journey that we're going to go on with her? Like, Because up until then, it's almost like you're describing ingredients in a recipe, right? Like you're telling me that she finds Angela. I also did not know what a somatic sex worker was. So by the way, that was actually great advice from Carly. Tell me that it's trauma-informed therapy. I find out that she learns about her older sister who died um, at five months old. Like a family that keeps that kind of secret is a family that's messed up. That's a good thing for the reader, not for her. And then I find out about the fact that Aggie discovers that her female boss helped powerful men cover up accusations. Those are ingredients. You know, it's like you're saying um, you're going to make a quiche and here's the eggs and here's the flour and here's the butter. I don't want you to talk about the quiche, not the ingredients. So tell me how all these things are shaping her life in a way that moves the story forward, because the story has to move forward. And in referencing another quiet book that you used as a comp, Writers and Lovers, that is actually, I wish I could read the query letter for that. We wouldn't have a query letter for that. I wish we could have a query letter for that, because that's, it's a very quiet book. But Lily King does this. Like she, she makes sure that Casey is going through all these things in her life, but they're all connected, right? Like the guy she meets while she's uh, serving tables, the older guy who's a writer, he is a mentor of the younger guy she's seeing. So it's all connected and it all, there's this pressure cooker situation. She's dealing with, with her manuscript and you, she has her friend Muriel. She has her mom's death and her dad comes to the restaurant, the same restaurant where, where she meets the guy and wants her mom's jewelry or some horrible thing like that that made me really mad when I read it. But you're almost describing all these things happening to her. And there's one line about her agency, you know, and I wanted more lines about her taking control of these things that are happening. Yes, describe the pressure that's being applied, but tell me about her taking control of her story, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Also great last paragraph. Absolutely great. So, so I do think, I'm being very straightforward here, I do think this query letter needs a lot of work. When I read it, I was like, it's, it's beautifully written because you're a beautiful writer, but it's a lot of feelings and a lot of promises and not a lot of plot. So query letter should focus on your hook, the inciting incident, the escalating stakes. So I guess it's, it's about digging, you know, through your sentences to find out where your plot is buried. Wonderful. Thanks, Cece. Ruth, do you have questions for Carly and Cece based on that feedback as their advice is kind of settling in? Do you have any thoughts that you would like to share? Yes, but just firstly, that was so, so useful. And thank you. And it was almost as I was reading it, as soon as I said the words funny, I like cringed inside as I read it out loud. And I was like, I can't just say it's funny. <laughs> so there's something definitely in also just being put on the spot to actually kind of read it and defend it that made me kind of feel when it, I was like, I would probably query that if I was on the other side of this letter. Um, like really helpful practical tips about like um, repeating her name in the synopsis. I agree, it does feel like ingredients. And I think it's because I was trying to prove that stuff happens. 
um, that I was kind of doing those like beats almost. And I kind of didn't know which ones to put in because the the main thing, the kind of point of her journey is sort of making peace, like doing a sort of cyclical journey in her hometown of making peace with some traumatic events that happen both to her, but in her family and like what's been passed down throughout her mother line particularly. Um, and in parallel, there is a, a younger woman that asked her to help speak out against Mina who's her female female boss that was covering up the sexual assault so she basically has to help this young girl um, tell her story and and through that she sort of realizes it's also her own but I didn't really say that in the query letter and I feel like maybe that's more important than I kind of knew it was only when you, you picked out that last line about you know using her voice to make peace of the past that I thought I should probably unpack that a bit more mm-hmm. um what are you doing to me you didn't tell me the best part of this <laughs> like why are you torturing me Ruth don't do this to me as you were talking out I was like oh that happens the young the young yeah woman I should have said that for her help I want to read about that what yeah. are you doing to me like, also this is actually you you just gave us the great idea any and any listeners should read out their query letter out loud because mm. you had reactions as you read your own even though you wrote it right so mm-hmm. maybe that's a good exercise yeah definitely definitely and I think maybe read it to someone else because I do sometimes read my work out loud but I think it was like knowing that you were listening to that I felt like not confident in those words that I was saying them guys uh, read it on social media let's do it let's let's, <laughs> let's have listeners read it on social media because that will really up the stakes yeah it sounds like a very painful a thing. yeah there should be a clubhouse room where you guys can all just read your query letters to each other. <laughs> about the, the stakes. So is that clear in your mind, Ruth? Is that something that you're able to make more clear in the query letter? Or is it something you having to give some thought to, especially in terms of what, you know, they were saying about the external stakes as well? Yeah, I don't think I have the best answer for that yet. Like, I feel like there's lots of mini stakes that sort of get raised throughout the, the book the question about like why sh- couldn't she just go and start a new life I thought was a really good one I think it's she's got so much unresolved things that she's she starts getting glimmers of sort of understanding for that I think she's kind of addicted to finding out more and sort of realizing the the value in kind of like shining a light in the dark places so I think that's why she c- continues on this quite difficult journey but then there's also financial constraints and that she, she can't afford to be anywhere else so she can't really just start a new life but I don't yeah I'm not quite sure what like the one stake is if or yeah. if there is one yeah and I think it comes back to your theme about like the trauma passed down through the mother line kind of comment when you were saying that like there's a reason why we want to stay like that that element of family I think comes through but infection there needs to be a stake involved so I mm. think that it's there and it's a human it's a natural human thing and you wrote it in a natural human way but in fiction we need those roadblocks and the reason for it I want to fight to pass those roadblocks and the reason that she believes her family and herself is worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. Could could the stakes not be that if she speaks out against her boss, also a woman, to help out this, this younger woman, her boss will destroy her life? Like she has financial anxiety. I know this from having read the pages and you also just confirmed it. So could that like, because that feels like a big deal. Like speaking out against your boss is always scary. And the other day I had a conversation with a friend where we were like, we can't define the word freedom. No one can. But like, I think the closest thing in our world, in our modern world might be to have the financial independence to say no to a great opportunity that you really wanted if you realize that opportunity is actually not aligned with your values, right? So she doesn't have that financial freedom and so this woman could destroy her life if you think about it like I don't know I don't know if that's in keeping with your story we're 
getting into brainstorming territory here, but that could be it, um, especially since it makes sense with with the secret her mom kept. And I know it wasn't just her mom, but women are told to keep quiet about unpleasant things because or else they get blamed. Right. Like that's that's the, the hold that society has over us. So if you think about it, it's all thematically connected. And there's past trauma, which, yes, is important because backstory is what, you know, I, I'm a 37 year old woman. It means that there's 37 years that happened before I'm here talking to you guys now. But we need to be interested in what's happening in the present. Backstory doesn't propel the plot forward. And you're telling me that this young woman approaches her to help and she needs her boss. And I know from having read her, her pages that her boss is problematic in other ways. So that seems interesting to me. I don't mm. know. It doesn't happen until maybe between a quarter and a half way through. So I think that's why I felt like it wasn't as much as a sort of plot point to put in. But actually, yeah, it is, it is key. And it definitely is. the. It's, I guess it's the moment where Aggie does start having more agency because kind of at the beginning, the, the feeling that I was trying to portray is that she is just kind of floating and, and a bit listless and doesn't, doesn't really know the power she has because she's never used it. If anything, since the assault when she was 17, she's been shrinking herself. And so, yeah, that's why the, the art, being asked to help is really important because no one's ever really give, like challenged her to, to help them before. So well, and yeah. it's so much easier to help other people than to fight for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you can stand up for other people so much easier than standing up for yourself. So that's, you know, part of her arc and her journey. But but a big question is to be like, what's at stake for her if she doesn't yeah. stand up and fight, etc. That's the big thing. You know, that's the stake that needs to come through. What's at stake for her if she doesn't confront this and if she doesn't take it on and if she doesn't fight for this younger woman kind of thing. And, and what's standing in her way if she does, right? Like who who is going to fight her? Because it also can't be easy. It also can't be, well, if I don't do this, I'll be sad or, or, or hurt or whatever. Like what is her formidable opponent? Mm-hmm. I was just going to chime in and say, not only do the stakes have to be internal, because I think that's what happens when a lot when we're talking about a lot of women's stories, right? It's the growth, the inner arc of the of the character, but there has to be an external thing. Like, what is it that she wants? Does she want to live in this? I mean, we haven't gotten into the pages yet, but you know, does she want to live in London alone? Like, what is her idea of what what that life looks like that she's fighting for? And it has to be a thing, and the thing can change, right? She can think she wants a thing, and then oh, it, it turns out it's something different. Something surprises her in the plot, and, and she goes in a different way. But again, we we can move on to the pages now because I'm probably gonna gonna spin off of those. But yeah, I feel like there is there has to be something she wants that's physical as well as emotional. All right. So before we dive into the discussion of the actual pages, we're going to ask Ruth to give our listeners a bit of an overview of what uh, is contained in the opening pages so that you can follow along. Ruth? So the story begins with Aggie at home in rented accommodation. She's moved back to her hometown of Oldsham and is is renting off a family friend purely for financial reasons. Um, She has to be there. And she's imagining the life that she actually wants. So she talks about maybe it's a moment to manifest, which she doesn't believe in. She thinks it's, it's bullshit, but she thinks, well, actually, I've got nothing to lose here. So she's imagining this lifestyle where she's living in a, a two-bed flat in London and there's a Sunday flower market around the corner and it's a very aspirational lifestyle. One that I think she thought she could have when she was at university there and then realised quickly that was a false uh, reality. 
And then uh, she gets interrupted from her imagining uh, or manifesting by a knock on the door from a a neighbour called Harris, who she realises is a boy from school from the year below her. And she makes a comment that actually everyone's someone in Oldsham. Like you you can't really escape these old ghosts because they're everywhere. And she kind of wants to, I guess she's withholding from him as to to why she's there and trying to make out that life's going a bit better than it is for her. So she claims she's a writer just back temporarily, which is half true. She's a ghostwriter for a social media influencer. But she hates her job and everything that the influencer stands for. And it's an interaction that goes on um, between Harris and Aggie that touches upon things that happened at school. Like there's there's hints that they both had a hard time. They were both sort of bullied for different reasons. It's sort of touched upon that there was rumours around her in this in this night that happened with a with a guy, um, which we'll come to learn is an assault. And she remembers the rumours about Harris and how he was in a same sex relationship and and the sort of horrible things that were said about him. So there's kind of an affinity between them that she's resisting a bit because he's an old person from school and she doesn't really want to connect with anyone in this way. Wonderful. Awesome, Ruth. Thank you. All right, Cece, why don't you dive into your assessment of those opening pages? I have to say that I'm going to gush just a little. There's so much that's working here. The writing is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I care so much about writing. I just love reading beautiful sentences and all the sentences here are beautiful. Um, I'll give you examples. That's the thing about Old Shum. It's haunted by people dragging our teenage years around. I loved that. I also loved the sophistication you showed as a writer in terms of writing dialogue. When Aggie meets her friend, Harris, um, her old friend from school or, you know, peer from school, there's a line that, that we read. It says, I give my can't quite place you smile and wait for him to fill the gaps. Then Harris says, this was on our doorstep and hands her a package. This this might seem like the silliest thing in the world, but a lot of writers don't get this. We need to know what she's thinking and what she's thinking can't be perfectly aligned with what she's saying. And this is what you did here, right? Like in, in, in every single page uh, where there's dialogue, there's what's being said and it's being said in a really well-written way, but there's also what's being left unsaid which I talk about all the time because it's really, really important. She knows it's Harris. The reader knows it's Harris. She told us already, and yet she pretends like she does it. And that tells us about her character. It tells her about the state of mind. That dissonance is essential and inherent to humans. And I think it's really important to show that. Even things like, I smile, not feeling any happiness for him. So I absolutely loved it. It was very, very, very good in terms of the dissonance. There's also, you know, I, pro- I said I was going to gush. There's also something that you do really well, which is show me how other characters are feeling, not just our protagonist. So for example, there's a line where you say Harris is talking. I should fire the lot of them. And then a pause while he stares at his shoes. And then he asks, are you renting off Kate? Because she's staying at Kate's house. You're not telling me Harris is uncomfortable, but you're showing it, right? Like when he looks at his shoes, it's such a small thing. And yet these small things, these are the layers that make a good story. So it's absolutely wonderful. There's also dry humor. You promised funny, you gave me funny. That wasn't meant to sound like a brand. There's nothing impressive about crawling back to the Bristol suburbs with a trunk of student debts as your souvenir. I laughed and I, you know, it's, it, this is very good. This is very, very, very wonderful and good. I have notes for you because this is what we do here, but please, please know this is fantastic. I would have hundred percent kept on reading if I had more. Um, I want to read more. This is very, very good. Question, the start where she's manifesting. I don't think we should start with that. I, I hate saying this because 
It's very well written and cutting beautiful writing hurts a little. I didn't even write it and it hurts. But what what is it accomplishing? All it's telling me is that she has financial anxiety because after all, she's manifesting a life where like she doesn't have a mortgage. She actually has a place and make it makes it mortgage free, right? And I think there's easier ways to, to, to show financial anxiety, even in through the dialogue with Harris. Like she could, that could be a part of her thought process. Um, the fact that she's there house sitting for Kate as opposed to, you know, living her her best life. And also there's, you know, if you notice you in the second paragraph, you say, and I can't do it knowing that Mina was born with everything worth manifesting. But then in the next paragraph, she does it. Like you tell me she can't manifest, but then she manifests. So that was confusing. And I, again, I don't think we need it. It's passive. It's, it is, it is doing things, right? Like I, I learn about her anxiety. I learn about her state of mind. I learn about what kind of life she wanted as a, but I don't even know what kind of life she has, to be honest. So I, I wouldn't start with that. You can start with the dialogue. You can maybe start with something else, but you know, it reminded me of Writers and Lovers because at the very first page of Writers and Lovers, Casey tells us that she has a, a, a promise to herself or whatever it is um, that she won't think about money, right? Because she thinks about money, she can't write. And if she can't write, she can't write her book. And 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 so I, I understand the financial anxiety. It's very specific to someone of her age. It makes total sense. Readers will relate to it. I'm curious, but I don't think, I don't think we need the manifest. I wouldn't do the manifesting. I, I don't think it is. My second question, the package. Is the package for Kate or for her? Um, and wouldn't she be wondering about what's in the package? Like I'm sitting and I'm house sitting. This human appears and tells me there's a package. I want to know what's in the package. Does she always get a package? Is this for her boss? Because I love getting stuff in the mail. So I'd be curious. So that felt a little weird for me. And then there's also page, where am I? Page six. Remember that page one and two are the query letters. I watch him wave to his mother through the kitchen window. She's wearing a purple headscarf and moving past pans around. That's Harris talking about his mom. Where did his mom come from? Is it that small of a town where everybody knows each other? Like, this is not something that bothered me at all, but I, I'm talking to you. So, so I can ask. It just, it gave me pause and I was like, huh. And then final note. Last paragraph, I've never been invited to her VIW circles, parentheses, that's very important women, and no, I don't care, close parentheses, or had a seat at her supper clubs. This felt off to me. The writing didn't feel like you, and I've only read five pages, and I'm telling you what you sound like, but it was the one writing that I was like, it wasn't bad, there's nothing bad about it, it's funny, but it, did, it, it felt off, it didn't feel like your writing, I don't know why, it just felt not aligned with everything else. So, okay, I'll shut up. So just on that, I think I think Harris lives with his mother, doesn't he? They're the ones who live across the way, Ruth. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But he said he lived with friends. He didn't say he lived with his mom. He lives with friends and his mom. Uh, no, he just lives with his mom. I'm just trying to find a line didn't where he, he say suggests he lived with friends. friends. Oh, he works with friends. That's what I was confused about. Guys, this is my brain being dumb. Is it, that it what he said? I think, no, he thinks, he, he says he's going to move. He's just got his deposit together, so he's moving. I'm down at Connaught's Brewery and have been for four years now. Some lads from our year, and I just thought it was like a neighborhood. I, it's obviously a brewery. This is dumb of me. But I just, I assumed, like I read this fast, and I was like, oh, okay, they're, mm-hmm. they're in a neighborhood, you know? Okay, like, so, so we'll come gotcha, back, gotcha. Ruth, to why you began with the manifesting, because I, mm-hmm. I think the great part of, of the format like this is we get to ask you questions and see why you did the things you did, and then we can perhaps suggest other things. But let's dive into Carly. Would you like to give us your feedback on the opening pages first? I 
was a little bit confused about who Mina was at the beginning here. I thought at first that Mina was maybe the woman whose house she's house sitting, but then we find out later through Harris that it's Kate. And so I didn't know who Mina was for a while. And this is one of those things, Cece and I always talk about this, like it's, it's great for us to have questions and have queries and like just things we want to figure out. But this one was a bit of a like stumped me kind of query. So I don't know if maybe I'm just going to read a sentence. And I think that this sentence can maybe do a little bit more work. So it says, I can't do it knowing the copy and paste science she preaches. And I can't do it knowing that Mina Mearden was born with everything worth manifesting. So maybe just adding a little bit more to that sentence to explain that. I don't know. I don't know if you need to say there it's the boss or something. I don't know. But I think I, I just thought maybe, oh, Mina was away manifesting some, some great world and she was staying in Mina's house. So I was just a little bit confused about whose house we were in at that point. And uh, I felt like overall it was a bit of a passive opening. And I think that's kind of what Cece was getting at where I think we need to figure out where this book starts. And I thought that the manifesting just, she's so sedentary, right? And it's happening in her head. And so it just felt a little bit passive. I almost like, I feel like if you really want to keep this section, she needs to we need to shine a light on something other than this straightforward kind of, you know, imagining that this modest but charming two bed in London kind of vision, whether it's, is there a ex lover with her there? Or is it like, I don't know, uh, not like just something happening in that, in that imaginary world that again, leads us to more questions. So I think that again, I think that can do that paragraph can do a little bit more work with um, keeping us a little bit more intrigued if you really want to keep it. But I actually don't think we need to keep it. I I think we could probably start closer to when she gets the knock on the door from Harris because Cece was talking about this whole um, like financial insecurity bit. And so, and cause I think that's a lot of, again, we'll, we'll get to you what you, what you were trying to accomplish with that. But, um, but you know, we're talking about the financial insecurity. And so I was thinking as, as I was reading and as Cece was talking about the package, I think this package can do a lot more work because is the package hers? Is it not hers? If something showed up that she didn't pay for, which she be like, holy shit, did somebody steal my credit card? I only have, you know, X number of money, you know, left on my, on my credit card. You know, I can't, I can't go into debt, blah, 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 blah. Like, I think that the package can symbolize more than it just being a package as a way for Harris to come over. I think that, or if it is something for Mina explaining that, oh, that's for my boss. Thank God. Cause like, I can't afford that. Or what's in that, what, what Harris is carrying across the street is worth more than my grocery bill this month. Do you know what I mean? Or, or find like, find a way for that package to do more work. Because right now it's a great prop, but it's still a bit of a prop, right? So that's kind of my my opinions on that. But Cece already highlighted a lot of the wonderful lines that I really liked. I liked the um, I smile, not feeling any happiness for him. Um, you know, just just so many little beautiful, beautiful things. You know, there's nothing impressive about crawling back to the Bristol suburbs with a trunk of student debt as your souvenir. I mean, really, really wonderful little lines. And so that's why I feel like the book starts with the dialogue. And I and I think that we don't need that that opening section because it's it's very passive. And then I got to the end where uh, I had straight back to bed, retrieved my laptop from under my pillow. I'm slightly under Mina's preferred word count for her Sunday soul newsletter. So I might as well sign off with something particular saccharine today. This is telling me much more about Mina. And this this kind of was the like, oh, that's who Mina is moment for me. And, and so at this point, I was, I wrote in my notes, um, 
I think that all of this kind of Mina stuff needs to be much more spelled out in the query letter because I think it's really interesting. It's a great little secret that she is, you know, the ghostwriter for a, a social media superstar or a girl watch your face lady's name is Rachel, a Rachel Hollis type of uh, a Rachel Hollis type of character. I love that. And so then there's also a great metaphor there of like hiding behind somebody else and the comfort in that and, and not being able to stand in, in your truth. So I think that should be worked into the query letter. But yeah, I would I would love to hear more about yeah your intentions about these opening pages so we can drill down a little bit more. Okay, just before we we get Ruth to to answer those questions for us from my side, you know the things that we look for in in opening chapters that we say specifically to kind of try and focus on is one an emotional shift from when the scene begins to when the scene ends. And in this scene, her emotions stay pretty static. You know, she starts off dissatisfied and she's manifesting things and she ends up kind of dissatisfied. Like there isn't a huge emotional shift for me in the scene. And in terms of conflict, you know, we want to see inner and outer conflict. And, you know, she's feeling a bit uncomfortable chatting to Harris But it isn't really conflict. And even in terms of inner conflict, like I'm thinking she's just kind of annoyed that she's here and she wishes more for herself, but also not not huge conflict there. And that was something that I wanted to see. And I agree with Cece and Carly. The writing is superb, Ruth, like really phenomenal, phenomenal writing. Um, And that's always the hardest thing to fix, you know, just choosing to start somewhere else. Like I've said on the podcast, you circle the building of your book and you just come at it from you know a different angle which I think is is easy enough and and my last question is just how important is Harris to the story because to have a character in the opening scene uh, who is not going to end up being important down the line that kind of sets the reader up for this expectation that this character is going to keep coming back and they are important so these are like my kind of thoughts so let's start with Cece's question about the manifestation why that that's something you chose to begin with I chose it because I thought it was an interesting way of revealing her sort of state of mind without spelling out what it was I was kind of doing showing the opposite to sort of and I think actually as I've read it back I I did have similar feelings as to like what is actually happening rather than what we're hearing about what she's not got like what does she actually have and I think that it makes sense to me that that's more important. I feel like because I know her so well as a character, yeah, that, that it's it's just really refreshing hearing from from new eyes that actually you need a bit more spelled out because that makes total sense. And yeah, my, so my intention was to to basically just try and find an interesting way in about showing what her inner world was by sort of showing what she would rather it was. But I agree that it does feel quite passive, and in terms of the, the image, it's just her sat on the kitchen countertop, you know, imagining, which isn't very exciting when I imagine the scene in my head if it was a a visual. I wondered what you thought about the idea of starting with her doing the writing and the Sunday Soul newsletter and then that being interrupted with Harris arriving if that could be maybe more interesting sort of rearranging that scene. I almost don't think so because it's kind of too much of a Carrie Bradshaw moment Mm, (laughs) you know. (laughs) She is not that. (laughs) Yeah 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 exactly so I think 
yeah, I don't know. I personally feel like yeah, it, it's the dialogue and it's mm-hmm. the it's the hair showing up moment because I just love things happening through dialogue mm-hmm. when dialogue's done really well. And I do think you do dialogue really well. And I think that's a strength. So I would start with maybe like one paragraph of like a bit of a setup and then get into the Harris moment. I wonder, because what we're all saying, at least this is how I interpret what Bianca and Carly um, are saying. And it's definitely what I'm saying is that we want imbalance, right? Mm-hmm. We want tension. And you mentioned at the beginning of this that you that this was a protagonist who was feeling floating and listless and shrinking herself. And you nailed it. I can see her floating. I can feel her listless. I can feel her shrinking herself, which is very impressive to do. Like you have the craft down. What you also need in addition to craft is to spark curiosity, right? Like I want to feel curious. I want to, and, and typically that happens with the imbalance. And again, quoting Lily King, not quoting, but like to reference again, she starts with her landlord and there's a huge power imbalance between them. And that power imbalance creates the tension in a quiet way. Yes, it's a quiet novel. I love quiet novels. That's not, there's nothing wrong with that. But this is to say that a quiet novel can still start with imbalance. Um, and the imbalance will lead to the great advice Bianca just gave you, which was we need a shift. Because mm-hmm. if there's imbalance, something something needs to happen. You know, you can't can't live life feeling imbalanced. You got to do something about it. You either lose or you win. We hope she wins, but not necessarily in the first scene. So I don't think you should start with with the writing. I actually think that's worse than the manifesting because at least manifesting, <laughs> at least at least she's doing something in her head. You know, like yeah, yeah. and not and yes, because it's a Carrie Bradshaw moment. But no, not because she isn't a Carrie Bradshaw. Even if she were a Carrie Bradshaw, mm. I, she should start with writing. I don't know enough about her story, but. I, I want to help you figure out what, where to start. I think that the question you might want to ask yourself is this, what is her power? She has very little power, clearly. Who has more power than she does? Who is around to disrupt her sense of powerlessness even more? Show us that contrast. Contrast is your best friend. Harris is adorable. And if Harris is important, then keep Harris. I love the part with Harris. I, I would have kept on reading forever, but But again, I don't know how important he is to the story. That's a question Bianca asked. I just, again, think that it's about making her feel uncomfortable. And Mm -hmm. it's not that she's happy. She's not. But she's also not uncomfortable. At least not more so than she was when she started the scene. Mm -hmm. How how important is Harris to the story? He he is really important. He is like the sort of, the love story is, this will sound really cheesy, but it is more about her relationships with herself and her mother and the female line in her family. But then Harris kind of represents also like making peace with masculine and and he actually towards the end so he, he he's sort of a constant person ah no spoilers oh no you spoilers said towards the end no you can tell people but I will stop listening I'm just <laughs> gonna take my headphones off okay wait should I say why he's important yeah so he uh so he, throughout the novel he's always kind to her and he kind of represents a male figure in her life that is the opposite to what she might have experienced uh, and actually he's bisexual he's not gay she made that assumption because he was with a man uh, at school and he and he's attracted to her and so at the end they return they're, they're sort of walking through the town um, near the uh, location where she was assaulted and there's kind of like a full circle moment where she's there with a kind man and yeah it's a full circle moment of, of realizing that she can embrace the masculine in her life and and and, and that be a kind figure and, and so there's a sort of a love story that is not the point of the book but it is like a subplot I love how healing that moment would be of her returning back to the spot with somebody who isn't a shithead <laughs> yeah and also so it's a skate ramp and the incident happened like at the skate ramp and he he uh 
at the moment anyway this might change it might be too juicy but I, he i uh, he like pays some teenagers to let them uh, ride on their boards for uh like half an hour so they try skateboarding and, and they're both terrible but like it's just a nice moment of kind of like reclaiming a time um yes. kind of stolen from her yeah i love that. Carly, I love do you that. feel like his his name needs to be mentioned more in the query then considering it starts with him and he's going to be important or not yes yes this this is now getting difficult because I haven't read the whole book and so but we're talking about a lot of intentions right so I would at this point I'm kind of just thinking we need to rewrite the whole query letter (laughs) based on our conversations um because yes I think we need to get into the we need to focus on the fact that she has this boss who's you know I think we need to focus on the 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 ghostwriting and the the state involved with her job I think we need to talk about that like matria lineage you know the female line stuff in the full circle and and all the plot points that go along with that and then yes and i think we need to because i think probably what you're trying to get at when you were talking about in the query letter appeal for fans of bethany webster's feminist theory of healing the mother wound and then you were talking about you're talking a lot about yeah the mother-daughter relationships and all of that sort of thing and but that's a lot of very theoretical ways of talking about it and so that's why I think that, yeah, we need to get into the plot of what happens to actually explain in a more straightforward way, in a pitchier way, as opposed to a synopsis type of way of doing that. In terms of the, the beginning, do you think if this mean is important, we should perhaps have an opening scene that shows their dynamic? What are you guys thinking for an opening scene that's that's kind of different to what we have now? Could it be a call with Mina or even Mina texting her being like horrible? I know I didn't listen to the spoiler. I know I yeah. checked out, so I well, don't know. No, you could you could maybe begin with that because we all like the Harris scene, right? So yeah. we, we all like that, but there just wasn't enough emotional shift or conflict in the scene. So mm-hmm. what do you think about Mina calling her just before Harris knocks on the door or something? I don't know. What do you think? So is Mina or maybe the package a virtual is job? Mina? Yeah, is, is Mina, is, is this a virtual job? Like a... Remote? It is a, yeah, it's a virtual job, unfortunately, because yeah. that would have been good if the package was for her. Could the package have been something that she ordered for Mina and she accidentally put Kate's address and Mina's really mad at her? I don't know. I don't, I'm just trying to, I have no idea what yeah, the package even is. But like, if your boss is mad at you, that that puts pressure yeah. on you. And I know it sounds really small, but starting with a small goal is good. Starting with small, mm. a small moment of emotional shift is actually good because it's an entryway, right? And then the the you know you walk into the building, you, all you see is is the foyer, but then you continue walking, and the house becomes bigger. So what if what if it's not just a writing job? Again, we're probably spiraling too much, but it's also like a content creation job, and something that was supposed to show up was that she was supposed to photograph something for the newsletter. But she doesn't live in a high-end enough place to make it look good enough for social media. I don't know. Something where we get in again to the financial insecurity and the and the power imbalance of where she's living versus Mina's idea of what somebody who's manifesting this type of life should look like. So yeah, maybe it's something that she's supposed to cover for the newsletter in terms of like mm-hmm. SponCon or like editorial coverage. You know what I mean? Because you get into the at the end here, like 20%, what is it, 20% off motherly herbs. Like maybe it's the motherly herbs. That mm. Yeah, that could definitely work because I do have other scenes where she's 
you know, scheduling content and she's, she's not just writing, she's doing all the sort of admin around it as well. So that could certainly fit and I think be quite fun. Yeah. Yeah. Cece, I can see the wheels spinning. I just want to read, I want to read the rest. I want you to send me the rest. I'm so curious to know what happens. That's why I don't <laughs> want spoilers. I want to read it um, and understand what, what journey she's going on. And I think that once I do, I'll have like more ideas about how to start this because again, we all love hairs keep Harris and Harris is important and Carla's idea to, to to make it about Mina is good I think I think it's something there and it has to be connected to Harris because otherwise it's just it's all the ingredients as opposed to the quiche right like it's this is why I thought that you know if if she's telling Mina the package is not here I'm telling you and Mina's saying they did they said they delivered it you're incompetent whatever and then Harris shows up with the package it's almost like you're mad at Harris you know although it is not poor Harris's fault but that's just it's one of those things where it's like it's a perfect storm right like it it, it it's all these these ingredients making something one thing it's it's all connected Harris ends up being connected to Mina even though they're not I don't know if listeners are gonna like this but I like this I like being able to ask questions. <laughs> And Mina's super important. She becomes really important in the story. So I like beginning with her as well. You know, Harris yeah. is important, so we begin with him, but she's also important and she's someone who she's going to have to stand up against. You know, this is who she's squaring up against down the line in kind of this David and Goliath, you know, show off later. So I think to show that power imbalance early on ties into all of that later. So if you can find a way to kind yeah. of incorporate Harris and Mina in those in that opening chapter, I think that's the winner. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I mean, it it sounds like a challenge, but I, I think it, it feels like it, if I could make it work, it would be really interesting way in, definitely. Mm-hmm. Cece and Carly, would you be prepared to read uh, an alternate beginning if Ruth is able to come up with it? I want to. Yes, yeah, please, definitely. please, please. Yeah, yeah that would be amazing. Yeah. I think there's also a lot to play around here also with themes of control and like how much agency she has over her own life because she is representing the work of somebody else and writing somebody else's work. Yeah, I don't know. I just think there's a lot there that you can play with, not in a, you know, need to tell us, but in a show us way about the control and the agency that she feels like she loves. And 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 as, as Bianca was saying, like how do we contrast her having no agency with the moment of having agency or or that frustration with you know the package not showing up on time and anyway I think there's a lot to play around with there yeah and and we want to see whatever the theme is coming through in those opening pages you know you've got a hell of a lot of amazing themes here that you've discussed with us and I don't know that enough of them like if it if it comes through enough in the current opening but like just hearing you speaking about it it's clear in your mind it's all there I just think you need to bring it to the foreground well we're now out of time this has been an hour-long chat. It's been absolutely amazing. I hope you find it useful, Ruth. I know at this point your brain's probably ready to explode because it's just it's a lot in one in one go. My advice to you is to kind of walk away from it, let everything stew, and then kind of see it how you can come back at it and and circle that building. And if you find a different way in, we'd be very interested to to read that and give you feedback as to if we think you've you've started at the right place. Thank you so much. I've learned so much in this last hour and and by listening to the podcast. So thank you for having me on. And it wasn't as scary as I thought it was going to be. So that's good. <laughs> Books with hugs, not scary. <laughs> yes, <laughs> can vouch for that. Listen, the title's got hooks in it. It sounds damn scary. <laughs> My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. 
one of the tricky things though about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky though to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Right, today's guest is a published author, both traditionally and self-published. For her day job, she plans author events and writing workshops for a large metro library system. She's been a Pitch Wars mentor since 2012 and now serves on the board and as the agent liaison, as well as helping to run hashtag pitmad for the last four years. She's the host of Pub Talk Live and Agent Chat Live on YouTube, as well as the podcast series 
queries, queries, qualms, and quirks. She also writes for Book Riot and is a former publicity director for a mid-sized press. It's my pleasure to welcome Sarah Nicholas. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hi, Bianca. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. So here's my confession. I know nothing about PitMad or, or Pitch Wars or anything like that. I, in 2014, finished, I think that was my third novel, um, and I just sent it out to agents. I don't even think I was on Twitter then. I wasn't on any kind of social media, and I was lucky enough to kind of get my agent then and took it from there. So I'm one of those terrible people for the listeners who I will see you pitching at these things, and I I'll read your pitch and I'll be like, oh, that's such a nice pitch. And then I press like, and then I find (laughs) out that I'm not supposed to do that because only agents are supposed to do that. So can you, Sarah, take us through what pitch wars are, what what PitMad is for the listeners out there who are like me, who are fairly clueless and and don't even know about the side of publishing? Yeah, I love that you don't know anything about it because that means you don't have any misconceptions about it. So pitch wars and PitMad are run by the same organization. Organization. So that's part of the confusion. Uh, the organization is called the Pitch Wars Mentorship Program. So PWMP. So I'm going to refer to the organization as PWMP so that to reduce confusion. So Pitch Wars is an annual mentoring event where published authors, industry professionals mentor an unagented author through a full round of revisions. And then at the end, there's an agent showcase. And so agents can comment on the pitch and first page and request it. And that's done through a kind of traditional looking submission process. So there's like a form that you fill out with your query and first page and synopsis and everything. And then the mentors read through their main, their inboxes and choose one person to mentor. So PitMad is entirely different. PitMad is solely a Twitter pitch event. So it happens four times a year. It happens on the first Thursday of the third month of every quarter, which is confusing, but that's how I remember it. So it's going to be March, June, September, and December, the first Thursday of those months. And anyone can enter if they are unagented and their book has not been published before. And that's open to all genres, all categories, including nonfiction. And then agents and also usually small press editors, sometimes larger press editors, but usually small press editors can request to see more by liking a tweet. If you do receive a lot of likes, you are going to get likes from people like Bianca who and don't realize, you know, what's going on. So I would just recommend that you take a look you know, throughout the day to see what agents are requesting. But here's a a pro tip. You may not want to do this, but just a heads up in case it does happen and you get likes, especially from people that you're, that aren't following you, you can block them and unblock them and it will remove the like from the tweet. So that does help you kind of reduce the likes that you see on there. That's amazing. So for all of you who've had to deal with people like me, that's how you fix it, right? Yeah. So, so what, how does it work? So the agent who's interested in them presses like, and then what does that mean? They can send that agent their work. How, how? How does that work? Yeah. So the agents and editors who participate, they'll also tweet before they get started. If I like your pitch, do X, Y, Z. So they may provide a link. They may provide an email address. They may ask you to put certain things in the submit and the subject line of the email or something like that. So always go back and look at the agent and editor and see what they have said. Now, Pitch Wars has nothing to do with Twitter. A lot of people tweet about it, but the contest itself is not run on Twitter. You don't even have to be on Twitter 
Twitter to enter into Pitch Wars. That's the easy way to remember it is PitMad is Twitter only and Pitch Wars is no Twitter. <laughs> and on Pitch Wars, so that like you said, they fill in a form. So what? That happens on a website, right? That happens on the organization's website. Mm-hmm. And do they pick which particular agent or which mentor that they want to work with? How, how do they work that out? Yeah. So the, uh, I, hopefully I can remember all the dates correctly. So for this year, the wish lists are going to be posted on September 11th and we call it the blog hop. So for two weeks, basically you have two weeks to look at all the different mentor wish lists. It's sorted separated by category. So for pitch wars, we only do middle grade, young adult and adult and an adult. It's primarily genre fiction. So not a lot of nonfiction and not a lot of literary fiction, though there are some agent or some mentors who accept literary. And then, so once you read all their wish lists, you can choose four mentors to submit to. So whenever you fill out your form, it's a drop down list. You just select four and you have to choose four from the same category. So you can't choose like two from middle grade and two from YA. You have to choose from the same category. Okay. And how do like authors get involved to become mentors? If somebody like me wants to be a mentor, how would I go about doing that? Yeah. So our mentor applications, we have an application that mentors have to fill out. We have a a selection committee that reviews every single application and chooses the mentors. Our managing director will choose how many mentors. And that is based on usually the previous year's submission numbers. So, you know, if we get a whole bunch of romance submissions this year, for example, then we'll increase the number of romance mentors for next year. And that application usually opens up in June or July. So we have a spot on our website. It says get involved, and then you can click on become a mentor. And you can actually sign up to get an email for when those applications open up for next year. And what's the kind of success rate like being for, for people who've been mentored, who've, who've worked through it, et cetera, like take us through that whole process. So they get chosen to be mentored. Take us through how that works over what period of time, et cetera, et cetera. Is it different for, for every mentor or is there a standard process? So we have a standard mentoring process. We have uh, minimum requirements that they have to meet. So they have to do a full manuscript edit. They have to provide an edit letter by a certain deadline after they've chosen their mentor or mentee. And then they have to read it again. So that's that's our requirement. So they don't actually have to do a second round of edits or line edits or copy edits on the manuscript, though a lot of them do. And it also kind of depends on the timeline, right? So if a book needs like a huge amount of work, they may not have enough time to do another round of edits after that first round is done. If it needs less work, then you usually have more time to do kind of the fine tuning stuff. And then the mentee gets to decide whether or not they want to participate in the showcase. That is kind of new. We used to have the mentors decide whether or not the book was ready for the showcase. And then we reevaluated kind of the power dynamics of that. And we decided that now the mentee gets to decide. The mentor can take their name off of it if they think that it's not ready though. And then the showcase happens and we have, we usually have, let's see, last year we had almost 200 agents participating in the showcase and they comment on it and say, you know, please send me the full, please send me 50 pages. They provide instructions, that kind of thing. And then from that point, 
the experience can vary extremely widely. <laughs> uh, we have had mentees get offers within 12 hours of the showcase before. And then, but then there are some mentees who years later are still kind of unagented. And so it really does vary widely. A lot of people think about um, Tomi Ariyami as one of our most successful mentees. She got a large book deal pretty quickly. And ever since then, the awareness of Pitch Wars has expanded, of course, as well. But not everyone's Tomi, you know, very, very few people <laughs> are Tomi, actually. And so I think most experiences lie somewhere in the middle. Most mentees probably get an agent. And I say most, when I say most, I mean like 40%, you know, like that's the biggest chunk. May get an agent within a couple months of Pitch Wars. A lot of them never get agents based on that manuscript. Some of them will write a new manuscript. But if you talk to them, they'll tell you that Pitch Wars was still valuable to them because working with a mentor was a very valuable experience. And they learned a lot about writing and editing a book from that experience. So even if you don't get an agent directly from Pitch Wars, it can still be a really valuable experience. And it's also a great way to build your, you know, writing community. Yeah, well, one, it's a huge confidence booster. So to get chosen for that is amazing. Two, I love that there aren't barriers to entry because so much of publishing, there's, you know, gatekeepers and there's barriers to entry. So you can have someone who just can't afford to hire an editor to look at their work. And these days, agents are expecting work to be, you know, pretty much 90% polished before they look at it, before they offer representation. And that really isn't fair for the authors who just can't afford to spend two, three, four thousand dollars to have an editor go over their work. So this is amazing that it's kind of the work speaks for itself and it's it's not that you need um, special resources. And I agree 100% that working with someone who knows what they're doing on your work is really, really invaluable. Like you say, even if that particular manuscript doesn't get published, even if it becomes your kind of practice manuscript, you aren't going to make those same mistakes again, because some mistakes are really difficult to fix. So let's look at something like structure. You know, if a novel just doesn't have the right structure in terms of you know, inciting incident, key events, this happening, and then that happening, it's really difficult to fix it. It's like taking a quilt and picking it apart, the whole thing, every single thread, and then having to put it back together again, which is really tough. But other times it may just be, oh, there's a bit of a characterization issue or something, but regardless of what it is, you know, they are not going to make that same mistake again with the next book. Yeah, for sure. And it, it varies, you know, widely from mentor mentee to mentee, even with the mentees that I've had, I've chosen books that I thought were almost ready. I was a publicist for a long time. So my specialty for a long time was taking a book and tweaking it to make it more marketable, mainly tweaking the pitch. Honestly, most of the time the book was there, but the pitch wasn't there. But then I have had some mentees where we just did a complete overhaul of their book and pacing is my other specialty. And so sometimes that requires a lot more work. So yeah, you can, you can learn quite a bit from working with someone. Yeah. And also it depends on how open you are to that process. You know, I teach in creative writing. I know there's some students who are just hungry for the feedback they are like sponges. They take in everything you suggest and they just so eager to try and make it work, you know, in, in any way. And if it doesn't work, they'll try again and try again. You know, and some people are just kind of resistant to critique or to feedback. And so they're not as likely to use it, you know, to the best advantage that they possibly can. So it is a two-way relationship, but I also think it's a wonderful way for authors to learn how they will one day have to work with editors because it doesn't matter whether you are 
Donna Tart or whether you're some emerging writer, you have to work with an editor. Your, ed- your work has to be edited um, and you have to revise and polish. And I firmly believe that the magic happens at that part of the process. Yeah, I was just editing an uh, episode of my podcast and we were talking about how when your first time working with an editor, whether it's a volunteer or, you know, an editor, if it's a huge edit, then you're ready for everything down the line. Like if you have to do massive edits your first time around, but if your first time around is just like a couple of tweaks here and there, and then you get to one of those manuscripts that requires a huge edit, that's like a huge shift for you. That's a huge mindset shift, you know? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And I mean, with my book you know my first book that got, first got published I had to take out 60,000 words oh my gosh <laughs> um the book spanned four decades and all editors were like that's great you write well we love the story but you've been way too ambitious and to take out 60,000 words and take a novel that spanned four decades and make it span one year and three months that's oh. a big it's a hell of a big edit but you know again that's not a mistake I'm gonna make ever again Um, And it it really stood me in good stead for for future edits, because when you realize you can do that, you realize you can do pretty much anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Something that you said about being from the PR background, Sarah, that I'd love to discuss is, you know, there's so many writers whose work is really amazing. It's really good. It's strong. The story's strong. And then they go out on submission and they just can't get the story sold. And it's so, so disheartening. And, you know, as writers, we tend to go, okay, I'm not good enough as a writer. But honestly, I think sometimes it's just that that particular story would be incredibly difficult to market. And so editors can't just buy a novel you know, themselves in a vacuum. They need to sit with the editorial committee and that consists of what, PR, marketing, foreign mm-hmm. sales, et cetera. Can you tell us a bit more like about that process having been in, in that situation before? Yeah, so let's see. I, I did not sit on an editorial board. It was a mid-sized press. So it was, was structured a little bit differently because basically the editor and the publisher and the editorial director, it was just kind of the three of them. But yeah, definitely it does happen where a book is fantastic, but it's going to be really hard to sell, really hard to market. And even I read, oh my gosh, what is the book? It's a best-selling book. It's from the point of view of a dog. And the author had written two books previously and published them. And their agent was like, I can't sell a book from a point of view of a dog. So they they left their agent and then queried again. And I can't remember the book right now, but it's like a huge mega bestseller, you know? And so sometimes you just have to find the right people. Like you have to find someone who sees what they can do with it. But also speaking from the publicity background, sometimes you can you can have a book that you think is extremely marketable. You can do all of the marketing and PR things you know to make a book successful and it still kind of falls flat and no one really knows why. And then the reverse happens too, where a book may be kind of like midless at a publisher or even kind of a little bit abandoned at a publisher. And it just starts taking off and, you know, a influencer mentions it on TikTok or whatever, and it takes off and no one really knows why that happened either. And so publicity and marketing is all kind of a guessing game anyway. And so anyone who tells you like they know what they do, what to do to make a book successful, they don't. They don't. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think that was the case with that red, white and royal blue. I think that was a book that, you know, the publisher hadn't thought was going to do particularly well. 
Uh, and then they were hugely surprised when that book took off like it did. So, you know, who knows what's going to capture people's imaginations, what's going to make people hand a book to everyone they know and go, you absolutely have to read this. Um, and I think something that affects it as well is what else is coming out at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could have written this amazing, amazing book and somebody beats you to market with it, like, you know, six months before or whatever this book comes out and suddenly publishers are like, well, this book's great, but it's too much like this particular book, which can be extremely frustrating as well, because you write writing in a vacuum. You don't know what the bloody hell other people are selling and what's being brought to market. So that can be really discouraging as well. Yeah, for sure. And it's it can be really frustrating because so Red, White and Royal Blue, I want to talk about that for a second because I love talking about the, that book success because that book is new adult, which is if you ask anyone in the industry, new adult doesn't sell, no one wants new adult, blah, 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 right? So they had to put it in the adult section of Barnes and Noble. A lot of people think it's young adult. A lot of people call it young adult because it feels younger than adult. And it's still sold wildly anyway, even though people are saying new adult doesn't work. They weren't really sure what to do with it, you know? So sometimes the people who are, who are the experts who are saying this XYZ doesn't work, they can be wrong. It's an opinion. It's not a fact, right? Yeah. Um, and, and they're also basing that off of, you know, trends of things that have happened in the past. Because mm -hmm. again, there's all the comps and things like that, you know, a book gets compared to other books and that book did particularly well. So they kind of hope that this particular book is going to do well as well. But really there is no way there is no way of knowing. And it is wonderful when, you know, there's that book that nobody thinks is really going to do phenomenally well. And then it does. Was it The Art of Racing in the Rain? Was that the dog yes, book you were talking about? Yes, that's the book I was talking about. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. You see, and he believed in that book so much that, you know, he was like, He loved well, his agent over it. Yeah. Right. And, and when you believe in something strongly and you leave your agent, and can you imagine if he'd listened to that agent, mm -hmm. if he had gone, okay, I, this book won't sell because it's written from the viewpoint of a dog. Can you imagine? Like, how different his career would it be and then you've got books like city on fire by garth risk holberg i think he was like the editor of some huge journal and everybody had been waiting for him to write his novel because they said it was going to be the great american novel i think he had so many editors fighting for that book i think he sold it for like two million dollars oh, uh and you know it sold i don't know i think at one point i saw the sales figures were like 300,000 copies, which for an author like me, I'm like, hell yeah, that's super <laughs> successful. But when you've got a $2 million advance for a book that then the reviewers don't like, you know, the the public doesn't like, because sometimes you have a book that the reviewers go crazy for, like professional reviewers, like Publishers Weekly or Kirkus, Kirkus hates me. Um <laughs> I have yet to write anything that Kirkus likes, but they'll go crazy for something. And, you know, then the general public will be like, nah. And, you know, sometimes it's the other way around. And that was a book that just everybody thought was going to be the great American novel. And so it's it's really difficult to, to tell. Okay, so getting back to Pitmad and all of that, have you got some tips for those who are considering doing it? Because what, you have a tweet in which you like have one tweet in which to grab someone's attention. What, what advice do you have? Yeah. So for Pitmad, my advice is to look at previous Pitmads 
um, search for your hashtag for your age and genre. That's another thing is follow the guidelines. We have very detailed guidelines on the website and a lot of people will just use hashtag pitmad and that's it. And that tweet is never going to be seen by an agent or editor because they are all at the very least searching for a specific category like young adult or adult. So make sure you include your, your hashtags for your, your category and genre, and then take a look at previous tweets with those hashtags. So if you're writing a young adult contemporary romance, for example, look at hashtag Pitman, hashtag YA, hashtag, I think it's CR for contemporary romance, but I could be wrong on that and see what other tweets have done well and study them and see why you think that they did well and then try to emulate that for your own book. So did well means that they got a lot of likes from agents. That That is the thing. Do, yeah, you, that do other a, writers retweet to get the more um, visibility? How does that work? Well, not really. Yeah, that is a good point because we have seen, especially in the last couple of years, people kind of writers banding together to retweet each other. They do retweets for retweets. And so when I say attention, I mean from agents and editors. So look and make sure it's not just like a popularity thing. Uh, but I will also say, and this is like the dirty little secret about these retweet for retweet games. We encourage agents to look at the feed using the latest setting. So, you know, when you do a search, you can search for, I can't remember what's called most popular top, whatever. And then you can search for latest and we encourage agents and editors to look at latest. So then they're not influenced by these kind of retweet for retweet campaigns. So if an agent is looking at latest, honestly, the number of retweets doesn't matter because they're not going to see it unless they just happen to see it in their regular feed. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like you say, it could become a popularity contest. And as the writer, you do obviously want it retweeted as, as many times so that there's visibility, but that, you know, doesn't speak to the quality of the work, et cetera. So, you know, it's something you could try and do, but it's not necessarily gonna gonna help you. So mm-hmm. there's that as well. Yeah, I've definitely seen tweets with hundreds of retweets and no agent interest. And then I've seen tweets with one or two retweets and you know, like 14 agents liking it. So popularity definitely doesn't have a huge impact on it. <laughs> yeah. So again, it's like a putting together a really good pitch. Well, Sarah, uh, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you so much. That It's been really uh, fascinating chatting with you. Was there anything else that you wanted to tell our listeners, either in terms of perhaps your uh, YouTube channels and your podcast? Where will they find all of that? Yeah, you can find everything that you do at sarahnicholas.com. That is Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. And if you look on projects, that's where you'll find all the different things I do. Agent Chat Live and Queries, Qualms and Quirks are going to be the most valuable for writers who may be interested in PitMad and Pitch Wars. And because there's a whole bunch of information about agents and also about how different authors got their agent and got their book deal. So definitely check those out. And if you want to learn more about Pitch Wars, just go to pitchwars.org or PitMad. We have extensive information on the website. But if there is a question that you have that is not answered there after you've read the pages there, um, feel free to email us or contact us on Twitter. It's pitchwars at gmail.com or just pitchwars on Twitter. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember. It just takes one yes. Great news.
news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. 
they will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format, so if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.